probability that one or more team members may be infected by intruder organism. 75%. If intruder organism reaches civilized areas, entire world population infected 27,000 hours from first contact. Welcome to the Thing Minute podcast, where we discuss John Carpenter's 1982 science fiction horror masterpiece, The Thing, one minute at a time. I'm Harper W. Harris from HarperWHarris.com, and joining me this week is Alexander Morrison from Geek Rex. Hey, man! <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's awesome to have you on the show. We, we uh, well, we, it's been a little while since we put out a Geek Rex episode, but typically we're uh, we're podcasting, you know, every week or two and, and talking about all kinds of geek stuff. So it's it's cool to have you on this one. Yeah, I feel like we need to get back on that. Um, <laughs> I feel like part of the reason you're doing this is because you had the last movie of the week pick and we just never did it. <laughs> oh, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Am I holding up the whole group of this? <laughs> no, no. Uh, I, I feel like we, we like abandoned you. We were like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> but yeah, I think we're actually... Uh, um, the, our, the Geek Rex episode will probably be out long before uh, this episode will, but uh, hopefully by the time the listeners are hearing this, we'll have a whole bunch of new uh, Geek Rex content for them. But uh, yeah, we've been on a bit of a bit of a hiatus lately. <laughs> Summer break. Yeah, let's call it that. Why not? Cool. So um, today we are talking about minute 56 of The Thing, which begins with uh, a excruciating close-up of a needle going into Blair's arm and ends a minute later with uh, McCready getting ready to leave the shack where they're locking up Blair. So uh, before we get into it, uh, into the specifics, um, I usually like to ask everybody, you know, kind of what's your history with the, with the Thing? Do you remember the first time you saw it? And, you know, is it a movie that's had any kind of impact on you or anything like that? You know, I... Uh... I used to be a huge wimp when it comes to horror movies. Um, I was terrified of them for the longest time. And uh, I also used to write more fiction than nonfiction. And most of the stories I could get published were horror. And so I was like, I should really watch more of like the horror classics. And I got a bunch out of the library. And honestly, like a lot of them I didn't love. Like I, I still, Friday the 13th never grew on me and a bunch of stuff like that. But like uh, just buried in the stack of movies I got from the library was the thing. And uh, uh, it was by far my favorite. I probably watch it about once a year. This is a little bit of a weird time to have watched it for me. This is like my, um, whenever I have a snow day mm -hmm. or uh, there's a real, a uh, big snowstorm heading my way. This is the movie I put on late at night. You know, get a pour pour of a pour a glass of whiskey and turn off all the lights and watch the thing while the snowstorm rages outside. Yeah, I don't think you're alone in that tradition. <laughs> I don't either. It's certainly one of the better, uh, one of the best kind of you know icy weather horror movies and, and you know kind of isolated watch in the dark at home when it's cold outside kind of movies for sure. So. Cool. Well, yeah. Uh, so we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll get into a little bit more uh, later in the week, kind of, you know, um, uh, you know, other Carpenter movies and things like that, that that you enjoy. But I guess let's let's go ahead and dig into the minutes. So we start here where, you know, they're locking up Blair because he just kind of went insane and, uh, you know, trashed the trashed the tractor and the radio room. And, and you know, they had to physically take him down and, and carry him out here. So now they're sedating him, I guess, to just keep him keep him quiet and keep him from trying to trying to get out and cause any more mayhem. 
but obviously this happened a little bit before your minutes, but I just wanted to get your kind of thoughts on Blair's whole kind of, uh, when he, he goes kind of crazy. It's, it's one of the scenes that to me has always been a little controversial because a lot of people think that it's just, um, you know, that it's him actually, I've always thought it was just him kind of trying to do the right thing and trying to isolate them by, you know, destroying the radio and the tractor so they can't get away, so that they can't spread the virus. But um, a lot of people, and including John Carpenter himself, uh, say that it's that this is all kind of part of Blair's plan because he's already been infected and he's trying to kind of sow distrust and and get isolated so that he can you know start working on his uh, little flying machine that we see later in the movie. But it's always been something that's kind of strange to me, and one of the things I, I've been you know asking folks what they what they thought about. No, I, I legitimately have always read it, and uh, regardless of what Carpenter says, always will read it as um, this is Blair's. Blair is really kind of the hero of the movie. Like, uh, I don't think the rest of them would have been able to prevent themselves from calling for help or from doing any of the other kind of necessary things that it meant to stop the thing. And. Uh, the the logic behind that of getting them to kind of sow distrust and all that doesn't really sit with me because I think what what the thing would want more than anything is for everyone to be comfortable mm-hmm. and having a lot of those creature comforts, being able to call for help, being able to you know leave anytime you need to. I think those would all make it easier for the thing to operate. This to me is. Uh, and the minute that we're about to wa- the minute that we're about to discuss is kind of the last time we see real Blair. Mm-hmm. But I mean, uh, yeah, no, I personally, I, I think that this is kind of his goodbye, and his goodbye is you know like basically saving everyone, and then you know just telling McCready what the new rules are because up until now they really haven't had a ton of the paranoia at play Mm -hmm. yet. Uh, That really hasn't been the driving force. But uh, I think with, with the ominous warning to uh, watch, uh, was it uh, Clark Mm -hmm. to watch Clark carefully? uh, I think that's really when uh, the movie kicks into kicks into gear with kind of what makes it special. Although, you know, that, that comes out even more in in the next minute. So I'm sure we'll, we'll get to that. Yeah, no. And and I agree. I think, I think uh, you've got an interesting week of, of minutes, and, and this one in particular, I think you're right, is exactly where the movie really pivots into becoming this kind of paranoid thriller that, you know, is kind of the focus of the movie from from this point on. And yeah, and I tend to agree with you that I, I do think this is kind of the last time we see uh, we see the real Blair and that I think he plays kind of an interesting role in that he's almost like, uh, you know, to put it in kind of like Cabin in the Woods uh, terminology, he's almost like the harbinger. He's the He's the w- person who issues the warning and McCready has to decide whether he's going to take it seriously or not. And yeah, I mean, I guess the way I, as I've been kind of working through these minutes, the way I'm kind of reconciling those two things, the two sides of, uh, you know, how people view what he was doing. I think that really was Blair um, kind of trashing that stuff. But the other problem I've always had with it is like, if he was going to do that, why does he have to make such a show out of it? That, you know, if he was really trying to just isolate them, um, you know, and destroy the radios, he could have done that without anybody knowing probably. But I think maybe there's something to be said that maybe he's kind of in the process of being taken over. And so maybe the, his kind of, you know, erratic behavior and, and the way he kind of makes it so much bolder than he probably would if he was really trying to make an, a serious attempt at it is maybe kind of himself trying to fight it off the last bit of himself kind of, you know, fighting for survival. That could be, that could be. 
It's interesting because we know very little about kind of the mechanics of being turned. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, if they see you too early in the process, you're very clearly not human. You know, like you have the claws that um, one of them develops Mm -hmm. uh, as he tries to transform or, you know, something's wrong with you. But um, we never, I don't think we ever see anybody who is fully assimilated, but only just so. So that's that's possible. That is that that is definitely a reading that I hadn't considered. But I don't know. Like, there's just something about I I I, I like the idea that the way that this guy saves kind of everybody is by basically screwing over all of his friends and all the people he cares about. Like, he kind of recognizes what McCready and Childs eventually come to realize themselves, which is these people aren't leaving and they shouldn't leave. And someone has to do something about that. Yeah, it's it's very much like the kind of foreshadowing of the kind of total doom that these guys are walking into and that most of them haven't really realized yet that, you know, there's a point much later in the movie when when the last remaining survivors, they have an ultimate realization that, oh, yeah, there's there's just no way we're getting out of this alive. And it's it's probably best if we don't. And Blair realizes that so much earlier than everybody else. And it, it's it's definitely a it's a major turn in the movie and, and, and is a pretty ominous foreshadowing of what's to come yeah and i like that if if i'm remembering right the warning that he gives to mccready uh to watch clark Mm -hmm. is actually wrong you know like it makes total sense it is a hundred percent logical that is who i think everyone would naturally assume would have been the first to turn right but uh, I, I don't think Clark uh, Clark gets turned, um, or at least we know for a fact he isn't at this point. So, you know, as much as it is, as much as you know, I see it as kind of a hero mo- moment for Blair. It is one in which uh, he is not he's not infallible. He is doing the best he can with what he knows, even if what he knows is a little bit uh, uncertain. Yeah, no, and he's he's definitely a very human kind of hero at this point in the movie, and yeah, and, and the fact that he does kind of, I mean, that that's maybe one point in the camp, the the folks that kind of say that he's trying to so distrust the fact that he points out somebody who isn't assimilated is is you know something they kind of use in their favor. But I I, I agree that it, it is, I feel like it's just a mistake, and it is a logical one. It's one that you it seems very obvious that Clark is um is you know the the prime suspect at this point because he spent so much time with the dogs in the beginning and there's some other stuff in the script where they kind of bring up that you know why didn't why didn't he put the dog in the kennel right away like like it's almost like he was kind of abetting the dog's behavior for for longer than he should have and that's suspicious too but so he definitely has a reason to 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 think Clark was uh you know is not a person at this point but yeah, so let's um let's dig into this minute. So yeah, so they sedate Blair. We get that needle shot, which um I've talked about a little bit earlier when they, they there was another shot very similar like it earlier in the movie. There's some more later too that I think this is one of those things that you know it's it's totally unnecessary to do that close up, but it's one of those things where Carpenter can um sow a little bit of a uh, you know unsettle you know unsettle the audience a little bit with something that's a little bit more 
kind of day to day so it doesn't jump out at you, but it also kind of makes you a little uncomfortable and just how close up he shows that. And I actually learned, I can't remember where I read this, but that every time they do a needle shot like that, it's the same person. It's uh, one of the camera operators, Ray Stella, who was like, uh, I'll do it. Like, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that was kind of interesting that they had, you know, I guess the actors weren't necessarily comfortable with that. I, I would guess that in most movies they kind of fake this, but you know, they, uh, they give you these very uncomfortable close-ups for, uh, for people who are afraid of needles. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's kind of one of the things that I think the movie does really well is just make everything a little bit, a, a little bit creepy, like not full on scary, not full on horror, but it just, uh, it, it, it pushes buttons just a little bit to raise, raise your blood pressure maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that's important because this we are 50 minutes into the movie. We're 50, 55 minutes into the movie, right? Mm-hmm. And we're 55 minutes into the movie, 56, sorry. And <laughs> uh, this is when like the actual scary bit kicks in. And there right. were some like monster effects previously, but they've had to hold your attention for 56 minutes without having the tension and paranoia. And I think one of the tools that he uses for that is you never get like the distance from, uh, you know, a, you know, a needle being pushed into the skin or a moment of violence. You are right there up close to it or hearing the, the, the things scream when it's in a human body. And you're just like, that's not humanizing, but it's just way eerier than if it was silent or if it spoke or uh, if it did anything else. And so there's just this constant sense of just very slowly mounting, very quiet dread before even the tension and paranoia really kick in fully. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I think that's one of the major things that makes this movie such a, such a classic and such an important you know, horror movie is that it isn't just, it doesn't just rely on jump scares, but it also doesn't even not, it doesn't even really just rely on the big gory transformations that it's really famous for. I mean, that's one thing that I didn't even really realize until, you know, breaking it down minute by minute like this, how far into the movie you get before you really start to see that stuff. I mean, the dog transformation is a half hour in, and then you really don't get anything else until, you know, we're, we're almost an hour into the movie at this point. We still haven't seen another, you know, kind of creature outside of, you know, Bennings with his kind of, you know, twisted hand and the, that creepy scream you mentioned. So, you know, it's something that really, it's about, it's more about building that kind of dread and that, you know, and the tension and, and just kind of knowing that something's wrong, but you don't know exactly what's happening. I like that you're, for the most part, you're, um, as an audience member, you know exactly as much as McCready and, and most of the other people on the at the outpost do, and, and so you you learn these things just uh, at the same time, and so you know that something's wrong, but just like them, you don't know how to combat it or what they can really do to stop it or, or even what the problem is in some cases, uh, which makes it just even scarier that, that there's not like a very obvious threat for such a long time. Yeah, it's, you know, I mean, I always forget because uh, it's an exciting movie, mm-hmm. but it's a slow movie. Like, you know, I mean, I forget, given how popular and beloved it is uh, today, that like it was kind of a bomb when it came out. And part of that is very likely that it's actually really slow. Um, it is not 
it does not look like what you expect a horror movie to look like or have the pace where you get, you know, the body every, you know, you get like the, uh, the kill every 20 minutes. Right. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. And and I think you're probably right. That probably did have something to do with the, it's failure at the box office, As, especially for the time that this was coming out in 82. This is right. You know, ironically, it's right at the birth of the slasher movie because of John Carpenter, you know, just a few years before with Halloween. And those, uh, you know, the slasher movies kind of have such a different kind of feel and pacing, like like you said, that, um, you know, you expect to kill at a certain certain time and, you know, it keeps the excitement up. And this movie really does not worry about that. It's um, I think the pacing in this movie is, is excellent, but it's a, it's completely different just in the sense that it's it's very slow and builds up. And then when it gets to the part where things start going kind of crazy, it's, you know, balls to the wall. Like, you know, I, I, I'd have to look at the actual minute breakdown, but it's it's something like, you know, minutes 65 through 80 or something like that. There's just like constant action going on and, you know, kind of craziness for, for that big chunk of the of the end of the second act of the movie. So, yeah, it is interesting. And I think that stuff works as well as it does because of that long buildup beforehand that it, it definitely, you know, gives you some contrast and sets you in a mood to be to be terrified uh, when, when those things actually do happen. So, uh, yeah, so this is like we said, this is kind of where the paranoia starts to come in because Blair starts to warn him and says, uh, you know, I don't know who to trust, which you know, it's, uh, again, kind of crazy that that's the first time anybody said those words in this movie, <laughs> given that that, you know, that almost could be the tagline for the movie. And uh, Mac tells him to trust in the Lord. He's just kind of, it, you know, it seems like Mac is kind of, uh, you know, just kind of blowing him off. But then when he starts telling him to watch Clark, it's, he's so, you know, the, I, I always love that line. That's one that, uh, that, uh, that I quote all the time, just cause it's, I don't know, it's kind of a fun one to throw in anywhere, but <laughs> it's, he's so earnest and serious about it. And, you know, it, it seems like McCready kind of changes his mind at that point. He, he starts to actually consider what Blair's saying. Yeah. Blair, or I'm uh, sorry, McCready. That was something that actually I was, I was a little bit, I wasn't sure how to read that. Mm -hmm. uh, the trust in the Lord. Kurt Russell kind of always has a sort of sardonic delivery. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, I mean, I think was put best to use in Big Trouble in Little China. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, I mean, uh, kind of was a parody of Kurt Russell's normal machismo. And was also by John Carpenter, uh, it's worth noting. Uh, but... <laughs> So, you know, when he, when he gives a line like that, I'm legitimately not entirely sure, you know, like, uh, is McCready religious at all? Is this, cause this is a, this is an interesting movie in that we never know any of these characters by anything other than the actions they take in this movie. Yeah. You know, we don't, no one tells us that, uh, Clark likes dogs. We see how careful he is with them and that, you know, he takes in Matt Stray, uh, and, you know, all this. And so it is totally feasible that, uh, McCready actually, you know, is religious. But for some reason, I just never noticed or thought about that. But yeah, I mean, we don't know anything about his life outside this. We don't know if he's married or if he has kids or what his family is like. You know, there's no scene where he looks at like a little, you know, medallion with his, you know, wife's picture or something. <laughs> it is these are these are men at the end of the world and there is nothing outside of this encampment. No, I think you're right. It it adds to the kind of isolation and you know, I think, you know, there aren't 
you know, established backstories for any of these characters, but you can kind of put two and two together and, and understand that if they're here in Antarctica, especially a guy like McCready or even, um, you know, some of the guys like Palmer or, or Childs, you know, the scientists maybe have a, a career reason to be here, but, you know, a helicopter pilot, the only reason he'd need to be here is if he wanted to get away from from other people. You know, that's that's probably the most logical assumption. So, yeah, I mean, you kind of get that idea about all these characters that they're just kind of isolated and don't really necessarily want to be around other people. And that's that's why they're here. And, you know, that isolation obviously adds again to that kind of the dread and foreboding of the movie and that there's no, you know, there's no one to call. There's no escape. There's no one else around. There's no, you know, like scene in Halloween running from door to door and asking for help. Like none of that is here. So, yeah, the the setting and just the kind of the lack of background in in some of the characters does kind of work for the movie in some ways. And, yeah, this whole line, that line about, you know, put your faith in the Lord was something I I had never really noticed or thought about either. And and I I guess I just kind of took it as a, like you said, kind of a sardonic, uh, you know, almost a sarcastic, you know, I don't I don't really believe you like you're you clearly lost your mind kind of thing. But, yeah, it is kind of interesting. I think it's really the only time in the movie that, you know, religion gets brought up in any shape or form that I can think of. Yeah. At this point in the movie, or, or sometime between um, this minute and the next one, there's a a major scene. It's the the biggest scene that's in the script that they never filmed. But I think we'll we'll probably dive into that a little bit tomorrow. It's a pretty interesting setup. So, did you uh, anything? Do you have anything to mention about this minute that we didn't get to get to talk about? You know, uh, Wilford Brimley's great in this movie, and I, I I don't think that he really got enough credit for kind of the the stuff that he. He did. Uh, so much of the main cast here is uh, very masculine uh, mm-hmm. and very masculine in a specific, almost military way with uh, Kurt Russell or Keith David. And, you know, you you have a very and Wilford Brimley. It's, it's interesting because after that kind of uh, mad dash uh, here, he looks uh, kind of frail. He looks, he looks weak. He looks like he's drained of energy. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, Blair is one of my favorite parts of this movie. Um, especially I think his final scene or his final lines coming up, uh, although not in any of my minutes. Um, and so, yeah, I, I just really wanted to highlight how, how great he is. Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought that up. And, and, um, I've, I've definitely come to have a new appreciation for for Brimley uh, Brimley's performance in this movie, doing this podcast. And I, I've always thought his character was really interesting, but um, I also thought he was a little silly at times. But I think he actually does a really fantastic job. And this is definitely one of those scenes where you really see kind of the effort that he's putting into the performance. Because like you say, he really does kind of look... He looks defeated in this scene. His hair's kind of disheveled. His his jacket's like half on, like he can't even be, he can't doesn't even have the strength to kind of finish taking it off or, or put it on or, you know. Yeah. This is this is really like him at, he tried his best and, and at this point he thinks he probably failed. And the best he can do is to pass on what he knows to McCready and hope that he takes it seriously. And it's, you know, it's it's a it's kind of a sad scene for him, especially, you know, having seen the movie and knowing what's what's coming you know, that, that this is kind of the last time we'll see him as he, as he actually is. So yeah, I, I, I agree. I think he's, he's pretty damn good in this movie and this scene in particular too. Cool. Well, I think that'll probably, uh, probably wrap up minute 56 in this. Um, anything else you wanted to uh, mention? No, I think that's it. Sweet. All right. So 
That'll wrap up minute 56 of The Thing. But uh, in the meantime, you can go to thethingminute.com for full show notes on every episode, including links to anything we talked about and you know behind-the-scenes photos if there's anything relevant and stuff like that. So check that out if you get a chance. But make sure to come back tomorrow for another episode of The Thing Minute. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please go to thethingminute.com. There you'll find the show notes with links to anything we talked about on this episode and lots of other resources on The Thing. You can also find us on Twitter at The Thing Minute and on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Thing Minute. But most importantly, subscribe, rate, and review us in iTunes so you'll never miss an episode. Check out other podcasts like this at moviesbyminutes.com and be sure to head over to starwarsminute.com to listen to the team that started it all. Thanks for listening, and until next time, this is Harper signing out. (laughs) 